This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I am Kit Poliano, the Dean of the School of Biological Sciences at UC San Diego. I am happy to welcome all of you to our special Deep Look event for Earth Day 2023, Today, we will consider the planet and learn about the approaches scientists are using to understand and protect all of its diverse inhabitants and precious resources. We are grateful that you've taken the time to be with us here today as we consider topics that are of vital importance to the planet and our shared future. I'd like to thank our partners at UCSD-TV, who for the last three years have been outstanding collaborators in presenting this Deep Look series to public audiences on so many critical topics relevant for today's changing society, from new COVID research to health and science innovation, and to our most recent Deep Look event on mental health. Today, I am thrilled to welcome four remarkable scientists who will present today's topic, New Science for a Changing World. Following the presentations, we will be happy to take questions from the audience. Elsa Cleland is a professor in the Department of Ecology, Behavior, and Evolution at UC San Diego. For more than 20 years, she's been working in the ecosystems of California, where her research seeks to understand how plants are responding to various aspects of climate change, including increasingly frequent droughts and invasions by non-native species. Please join me in welcoming Elsa. Thank you so much. I am excited to present today some of the work from my lab, and it's really about the potential for California wildflowers to adapt to climate change. And I'm going to be focused on this sweet little orange one, the California poppy. And I want to start with an important acknowledgement. This is Dr. Liz Ryan in the lab and also in the Antelope Valley National Poppy Reserve. And she defended her PhD dissertation about a year ago, and none of the research that I'll talk about today would have been possible uh, without her hard work and dedication. Now, as we're all well aware, it's getting warmer worldwide, and it's also getting drier in many places, including here in California. In this map, the red and purple hues indicate where we expect to see more severe droughts in the future, and those little black dots indicate where we have high confidence in those projections. As you can see, in many places, plants are likely to experience more water stress in the future. And in order to persist, species are going to need to be able to either tolerate climate change, adapt, or move. So what is the potential for plants to adapt to climate change? Well, I'm going to pose to you today that I think some of this potential is hiding in plain sight. And I say that because if you think about it, really widespread species already experience different climates across their range. For instance, the state of California spans really remarkable climatic gradients. The colors in this map show an index of aridity, which combines temperature and rainfall into one number. So those blue areas in Northern California are cool and wet, and the red and orange areas in Southern California are hot and dry. And we would expect that individuals will vary quite a bit in terms of their ability to tolerate climate change based on those different climatic uh, conditions that they're experiencing. And that this would be reflected in genetic variation across the species range. 
So now let me pose a more specific question. Does existing genetic variation across a species range predict potential for those species to tolerate and adapt to climate change? And I'm going to start with the really basic hypothesis that I would expect southern populations to be better adapted, for instance, to drought. So the study that I'm going to talk about today focuses on California poppy, and it has this really lovely scientific name, Schultzia californica. It is, of course, the state flower of California, and it's known for truly spectacular wildflower displays. This is a photograph that was taken from a small plane over Walker Canyon in Riverside County during our last super bloom in 2019, and it's looking like 2023 is shaping up to be another super bloom year. California poppy is also fascinating because it has a wide geographical range. The black dots that you see in this map show where California poppy specimens have been collected in the past. And if you're lucky enough to go hiking in different parts of California this year, you're going to notice that this one species is incredibly variable. The California poppy in, in Torrey Pines State Park, really right here on the coast close to UCSD, has small yellow flowers, and the plants only live for one year. If you go further north, you'll see that the flowers on many of these plants are much larger, they're orange, and the plants can live for more than one year. But of course, if you're hiking around, you can't tell how much of that variation is due to genetic differences among these populations or just the different environments that they're growing in. So in the spring of 2017, Liz Ryan collected seeds of California poppy at about 20 locations across the state. And she grew seeds from all of these populations together in, in a greenhouse experiment with treatments of either drought or high water conditions. And that mimics what they would experience in Southern versus Northern California locations. So one of the first things that we noticed was that Southern populations flowered earlier than the Northern populations. This figure shows the average number of days between when a seed germinates and when the plant flowers, where each of the populations is a data point. And they're arranged based on how wet or dry the collection site was, with southern populations towards the left and northern populations towards the right. And you can see that these southern populations flowered nearly a month earlier than the northern populations when they were grown together under the same conditions. So you can probably just see the error bars around these dots. And that shows that while there's a lot of genetic variation in flowering time across populations, there's very little variation in flowering time within each population. We also found that Southern populations were more drought tolerant and better able to capitalize on high rainfall conditions. So this second figure shows the total mass of seeds produced by plants from each of the collection locations. And that's a measure of overall fitness or performance. This figure shows the average for each population when grown under high water conditions in green or drought in orange. And we found that the southern populations had higher seed production under both drought and high water conditions compared to the northern populations. So this ability to produce a lot of seeds with high rainfall makes evolutionary sense for those southern populations, since they experience lower rainfall on average, but sometimes experience really high rainfall years like this one. 
and an ability to capitalize on high rainfall is likely key to their persistence. So these results, along with other data we've collected, show that southern populations have a suite of traits associated with drought adaptation. So I just told you that they flower early, and this allows them to complete their life cycle when water is plentiful during those winter rains. They also have thin leaves, which allow them to grow fast. Similarly, they don't invest very much in roots. It's just um, growing leaves and flowers. And they produce a lot of small seeds that have the potential to remain dormant in the soil for many years. And this allows them to wait to germinate uh, in a high rainfall year like this one and produce the super blooms that we get so excited about. So let's return to that question that I posed at the start. Does existing genetic variation across the range predict the ability for species to both tolerate and adapt to climate change? And I would say that these data suggest yes. We certainly found that the populations in the South were more drought tolerant. And this research has some important conservation implications. So for instance, it shows that protecting adaptive capacity requires really conserving populations across the entire species range. This means that in addition to those big national parks that can protect big populations, all those little local nature preserves scattered across the state play a key role in protecting the genetic variation of many species. So these results highlight a key question that restoration practitioners are wrestling with. Given the predictions of increasingly warmer and drier conditions in California, maybe we should be planting populations further south when we engage in restoration, instead of local populations, which is the current best practice. Would this kind of assisted gene flow help northern populations adapt to climate change? Or would moving populations around homogenize the existing genetic variation we currently see across these populations? So this is an area where I think we need some more careful research. And this is something that we're starting to try in the greenhouse, transferring pollen from southern populations to northern populations under controlled conditions to, sim to simulate this kind of assisted gene flow. So I should be sure to say that California poppy is widespread and abundant, so I'm not suggesting that this species is in danger of declines anytime soon. But the goal of the work in my lab is to use California poppy as a model system to help inform conservation for species that face even greater challenges. I want to make sure to gratefully acknowledge the funding and collaborations that made this research possible, and I look forward to the panel discussion at the end of the session. Shermine De Silva is a new faculty in the Department of Ecology, Behavior, and Evolution at UC San Diego. She received her PhD in biology from the University of Pennsylvania and did postdoctoral fellowships at Colorado State University, at the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin, and the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute. She is also the president and founder of Trunks and Leaves Incorporated, a nonprofit dedicated to the evidence-based conservation of elephants and their habitats. Her research considers how people and wildlife can share landscapes in just and sustainable ways. Please join me in welcoming Shermeen. Hi everyone, and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to share my work with you. Thank you for that introduction. Um, so today I'm gonna to be talking about how we can share our landscapes with large and potentially very problematic um, animals. 
So to get us started, I want us to think about the global society that we live in today, which is highly connected both spatially and economically, and is more connected than ever before. But at the same time, this very connectivity is the cause of fragmentation and de deterioration of natural ecosystems. And thus far, our approach has been focused on preserving these wild spaces in the form of protected areas. In this talk, I'm going to challenge that paradigm of relying on protected areas and ask how we can share these landscapes with wildlife. And I'm going to take this perspective of a species that embodies all of the inherent challenges of doing that, the Asian elephant, which I've been studying since 2006 when I was a graduate student. I'll tell you about this in a bit. But first, uh, I want to introduce my lab. I just recently joined UCSD in, last year. And my lab studies the behavior and ecology of large mammals, like elephants, and what it means for us to share our landscapes, our living spaces, with them. I use a variety of methods that include direct observations of the wildlife, interviews with people, and various tools for observing wildlife and landscapes remotely. I study elephants not just because they're cute and iconic, but because they're also highly adaptable generalists capable of living in a wide range of habitats, ranging from these relatively dry and open grasslands to relatively wet and dense rainforests. So you can think of them as representatives or flagships for all these different ecosystems and habitat types. At the same time, they're also increasingly encountering very human-dominated landscapes like this tea plantation. Um, and that represents some of the challenges of sharing space with wildlife today. The other reason elephants are really interesting is that they are culturally significant, having had a very long and unique history of association with humans. When I was growing up in Sri Lanka, elephants were just always in the background, and so I didn't really think too much about them. So I was really surprised and shocked later on in life to learn that Asian elephants are actually even more endangered than African elephants, and that sharing space with elephants can often have negative consequences for both humans and elephants. But it turns out that not everyone loves elephants. As a poet, Maya Angelou would say, you can't really know where you're going until you know where you've been. So in order to understand how to conserve these elephant populations, we have to understand how we got to this point. So as you can see from this map, where the, elephant, the, the existing elephant ranges are shown in orange, they're highly fragmented and they're spread out today among uh, 13 different countries that span the breadth of Asia. And they represent not just ecological conditions, different ecological conditions, but also different human cultures and civilizations. So translating Maya Angelou's words into research questions for this talk, I'm going to briefly consider two questions, which are, how have these ecosystems that elephants were once in, how have they changed over time? And what are the needs of present-day elephant populations? So for the first question, uh, we use an approach called ecological niche modeling, and I'm going to try to explain what that is in very basic terms. So first, we have two kinds of data. One is where we see a particular species of interest, like elephants, and where we know that they occur today. Um, and the other data consists of ecological or environmental variables, say things like elevation or amount of forest cover or um, urbanization. And so we relate the locations where that species is known to occur to these so-called predictor variables, and we model the relationship between them. In our case, we use a machine learning model, and so I've indicated that as a black box. 
um, because it's often difficult to say exactly how it's modeling the relationship, but really it's, a, it's just a relationship between um, where the species is and the other variables that relate to where the species occurs. And then we can use that to make a prediction for a new place or time. Uh, and the result often is visualized as a map. So here, for example, the more suitable areas are yellow and the less suitable areas are blue, and we might call that a habitat suitability map. And the important thing is that you can do this um, forwards in time or to a different spatial location. Uh, for example, people are very interested in what might happen under different scenarios of climate change. But we can also look at it backwards in time. So we, if we had variables for the past, we can try to relate um, those to where a species might have occurred. So in uh, our case, we used predictors uh, based on this data set called the land use harmonization data set which has a number of different variables um, globally uh, for this long period of time that going all the way back to the year 850 up through the year 2015. We use 20 different variables and here's an example of three different ones uh, that might be relevant to where elephants could occur. And we limited our, uh, our study to Asia because that's where Asian elephants live. So in addition to those variables, we use uh, locations where we know elephants live today. So those are those red dots on the map. And we try to sample locations that are representative of all the different types of habitats where elephants could live. So in the results I'm going to show you now, um, I've simplified our, our, our um, prediction to just two categories. So the yellow are areas that we would consider suitable for elephants, and the blue are areas we would consider unsuitable. And this map over here represents the year 1700. And by 2015, we see that the yellow areas have decreased substantially. And looking all the way back to the year 850, that decline happens around the 1700s, so late 1600s and 1700s, where there is this dramatic change in the amount of air that was suitable for elephants. It's a total decrease of more than 60%. If we look at the size of the, the largest contiguous patches of habitat for elephants, th these patches decreased by a whopping 83%. So back in the 1700s, if you were an elephant, you could have essentially walked over something like 40% of the habitat in a completely uninterrupted contiguous um, stride. There would be no interruptions in the habitat. By 2015, this is down to less than 7%. This map just shows those changes in a single image. So the orange areas are everything that converted to being unsuitable. The green areas are everything that converted to being suitable. Back in the 1700s, if you looked at an area within 100 kilometers of where elephants occur today, their current range, 100% of that area could have been considered suitable for elephants. But by 2015, this was down to less than half of the current range. So that means that more than half of the landscapes in which elephants live today are potentially not really actually suitable for them. So this can be a problem, right? Um, there are reasons to think, based on other published research, that our results are in fact conservative. So if you have even finer scale data, for example, the magnitude of these changes might be even greater than what we're seeing. I want to put this in the context of some other studies, um, like this one, uh, which came out in 2021, uh, which uh, makes the, this very shocking observation that 
uh, people have been responsible for shaping nature for at least 12,000 years, so tens of thousands of years. Um, this includes indigenous communities and agricultural communities, and it's, it's more than 80% of tropical woodlands, a lot of areas in which elephants would be found, and over 90% of temperate woodlands. And, and this is a quote from the paper that natural history is human history. And it's very important to, to have a, a sense of um, perspective on the changes that we see today over these, with these long timescales in mind. So I want to ask the next question, what does this imply for present-day elephant populations and landscapes? For that, I want to take you to my study site where I've been working for many years, uh, uh, which is a, a national park, a protected area in the su southern Sri Lanka. So in this map, you can, those green splotches are all sanctuaries, and you can pretty much see their outlines um, from space. And the, the, the orange line that you're seeing there is the very edge of elephant habitat. So on one side of, the, of that orange line, you have lots of elephants, and on the other side, you have no elephants. So this national park that I work in is on the edge of elephant habitat. To give you a sense of what that looks like on the ground, if you were in the park with me, you'd see that it has lots of water holes and um, a large man-made reservoir, and it's maintained by wildlife managers. Um, it, it's a seasonal environment with sometimes uh, grasses and other times just scrubby trees and um, uh, deciduous vegetation. And this, this environment is extremely dynamic. So here you see a time lapse of the period from 1984 to 2016, where you pretty much see the outlines of the park emerging from the background as it becomes more and more sort of clear where what one might consider the protected area and what is outside the protected area. And so back to our elephants here. I've been um, monitoring elephants in this national park since 2006, and we follow the lives of individual elephants that we recognize. So here you can see their faces, and you can hopefully see that they're all distinct. And we've been tracking them, um, uh, uh, this elephant population, for close to 17 years now. So the second question we want that I'm going to briefly talk about today is how do elephants actually use these protected areas? And when we, talk, when we say elephants, I want to first underline that not all elephants are the same. They, just like us, they, are, they have different priorities based on um, different demographics. So if we consider uh, bulls, for example, the males, they split their time between two discrete periods. So elephants are, have this foraging period, which is most, most of the year. And then they also have this reproductive period called must, which can last a few months to, to up to half a year. Uh, for the more mature animals. And so they, they switch back and forth between these two periods um, annually. And if you consider females, uh, they also have different priorities than males. So they primarily are responsible for looking after young, so they want safe foraging grounds for themselves and for their young. And when a female is in estrus, just like males, she is also looking to um, find reproductive partners while the other females may be focused more just on meeting their nutritional requirements. So different segments of the population have different needs, and we might expect them to use protected areas differently based on those needs. The kind of data we have consists of uh, observations of more than 500 individuals over nine years, where we know the identity of the individual, where and when they were seen, and for males, whether they were in this reproductive state or not. 
From that, we can infer social affiliations for the females, and the males don't tend to form very stable social associations. Um, but for everybody, we can infer the, the interval between sightings, which tell, gives us an idea of how long, um, how much time they're spending inside the park versus outside. So first, the results for bulls, the males, we see that younger males are more often seen foraging, whereas older males are more often or exclusively seen in this reproductive state, meaning that they're using the park more when they're reproductive. Mature bulls that are 40 years or older were significantly more likely to return to the park annually in this kind of periodic basis, and they were more likely to be exclusively in must. Others in the population were pretty much transient, and there's no males that you could call really resident. Uh, although some of them stayed longer than others. For the females, only half of the females were seen across all nine years, only half of the females that we've been monitoring. That, that includes females from sometimes even the same social group, meaning that individuals in the same social group don't necessarily disperse together uh, as, as a group, um, and their behavior is a bit more individualistic. And we observed that larger social units tended to have um, more residential individuals. Across both sexes, though, three-quarters of the population were non-residential across years, meaning that there is a substantial turnover in the population and, and they have to be relying on areas outside of the protected area. So elephants need landscapes outside of protected areas to survive, but today this is what they face and what, what they encounter when they go outside of protected areas. We have things like roads and other infrastructure. We have landscapes that are cleared for other purposes like plantations, and, and farming, and this can present challenges both for the elephants, but also for the people. And so here is an image from a camera trap we've set up um, in a field where you can see in exactly the same position, and by day you have the farmer trying to take, um, plant his crops, and by night we have elephants using the landscape. So the question, the big question then is, you know, elephants, given that elephants really need landscapes outside of protected areas, but people need to, you know, make a living on those landscapes too, how can we live together? And that's the focus of, um, that's the a major focus of my future research going forward. And with that, I'd like to acknowledge all of the wonderful people who are involved in this research, including students from many different universities and, and colleges, um, my funders and collaborators, and especially my field staff, who, who, without whom this work wouldn't be possible. Thank you very much. Oliver Ryder is an adjunct professor in our Department of Ecology, Behavior, and Evolution and is one of our proud alums, having received his PhD in biology at UC San Diego. He is the Director of Conservation Genetics and the recipient of the Kleberg Endowed Chair at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. He also serves on several specialist groups of the Species Survival Commission of the World Conservation Union, including the Equid Specialist Group, the Conservation Planning Specialist Group, and he chairs the newly formed Animal Biobanking for Conservation Specialist Group. Please join me in welcoming Oliver. Well, thank you for that kind introduction. I'm pleased to be able to talk to you today about the work that we do at San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance to contribute to the recovery of the California condor and specifically the work that in genetics research and application that contributes to California condor recovery. California condors are amazing birds. They are the bird with the largest wingspan of any bird in North America. It's almost 10 feet of wingspan. Um, 
10 feet is like from the floor to the uh, top of a basketball hoop. They are quintessentially creatures of the air. They have uh, unique abilities to detect wind currents and uh, use hot air rising thermals uh, to gain altitude and then soar from one thermal to another and in that way fly hundreds of miles without flapping their wings. They clean up the environment. They're carrion eaters. They eat decomposing carcasses. And in doing so, they remove a material that could be infectious to other species and, and do clean up the environment. And California condors have been around for a long time. 10,000 years ago in the Pleistocene, as we know from, for example, the La Brea tar pits, there were um, mammoths and giant ground sloths and dire wolves and saber-toothed cats, and there were California condors. Those large mammals have all disappeared, but the California condor remains. It has uh, decreased in numbers, though, uh, um, probably precipitously in, uh, since the mid-1800s when there was such an influx of, of humans. The California condor once uh, ranged much more widely across uh, North America. But in recent times, as is shown in the inset on this figure in the right, they're uh, restricted to specific uh, regional populations. And this is because they went extinct in the wild. And now they are being reintroduced in California, Arizona, Utah, and uh, Baja California. The populations declined and, uh, and in fact, they went extinct in the wild. And that's why the populations are now located where they are, because the birds flying there are released birds or the descendants of birds that were raised by um, human care under human management to uh, breed up the number of animals and release them back into the wild. California condor populations shrunk uh, to a low in the mid-1980s, and which, at which time a decision was made to bring them all under human care. So there was a time when condors were extinct in the wild. And now uh, they are being uh, uh, reintroduced. Condors were restricted to the Los Padres National Forest, and they were uh, declared an endangered species in 1971. By the mid-1980s, the uh, numbers had declined precipitously and all birds were brought into uh, the wild. But before that, it was important to understand uh, more about the birds in the wild and particularly whether birds that were flying around together were a breeding pair. Were they different sexes? And California condor males look like California condor females. So it was necessary to develop a test that would identify the sex of California condors. And uh, this was done initially by an analysis of chromosomes. Uh, birds and mammals have sex determined by their chromosomal makeup. In mammals, like people, uh, females have two X chromosomes, and males have two different sex chromosomes, an X and a Y. In birds, it's different. Females have two different sex chromosomes, a Z and a W, and males have two Z chromosomes. So by uh, 
being able to distinguish a Z from a W chromosome, it's possible in a, a display of uh, chromosomes of a condor to determine what sex it is. But this is a laborious procedure and requires a, a blood sample. And now it's possible to do this, these tests um, using uh, material, much less material, for example, even scraping the inside of an eggshell. And the, uh, what's involved is being able to find a piece of DNA that's uh, located on the W chromosome and only on the W chromosome and another piece of DNA that's, in, that's found only on the Z chromosome, and then using the polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, to detect whether uh, fragments from one, from a Z or a W, are present. You may be familiar with PCR because it's a mechanism, it's a method that's been used routinely now uh, to uh, identify whether there's nucleic acid present from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So it's a uh, sensitive test to determine if individuals are infected uh, uh, with COVID. So uh, the slide here shows that we can determine these pieces of DNA on the, whether on the Z and the W, and by doing that, we're able to sex California condors, and we've sexed more than 1,000 California condors. After uh, they were all brought into captivity, uh, there was another need for uh, genetic uh, uh, information. Uh, we knew now we could identify males and females and pair them together, but we wanted to avoid pairing individuals that were closely related because uh, this, this inbreeding might cause the uh, loss of chicks, uh, their failure to develop or their death soon after hatching. So uh, we used a technology of the time that was called DNA fingerprinting to uh, look at the relationships among the birds, and we found that there were basically three surviving California condor clans that were like extended families, and that information has been used for uh, many years now to uh, structure the breeding recommendations for the managed population of California condors. The condor population has been, has been growing, and uh, the most recent uh, data are from the end of uh, 2022, and there are 537 total California condors in the world, and of that, 334 are flying in the wild. The captive population of 203 is the source of, of uh, bolstering the population numbers uh, in the wild and represents the uh, uh, entire gene pool of the species, which is like an insurance population. So the uh, effort to breed them uh, is being successful, but we now can utilize uh, the newest technologies for understanding uh, the genetic makeup of species, which is whole genome sequencing. So the California condor uh, population has been analyzed by whole genome sequencing, and that has refined the uh, understanding of the relationship of the founder birds. And now the California condor is the first endangered species for which the breeding recommendations for the managed population is based on whole genome sequencing of the founder birds. This work was done in collaboration with scientists at uh, UC San Francisco and UC Berkeley, and two California condors had their genome sequenced in, in uh, high quality and great depth, 
and also an Andean condor, which is the most closely related species to the California condor, and a turkey vulture, which is in the same habitat as California condors and, and you may frequently see in the environment today. And what we found out was that there was a, a lot of genetic variation left in California condors, even though there was indications of some inbreeding historically. Uh, they have uh, the two California condors we analyzed uh, have more uh, genetic variation than an, than an, than an Andean condor. And, um, so, uh, and similar amounts to turkey vultures, which are uh, doing well in the environment. So we believe that, that this genetic analysis uh, gives hope that over the long run, California condors will be able to establish self-sustaining populations. The challenge for California condors is now not their breeding in, in the managed care uh, or the technology to reintroduce them in the wild but their survival in the wild because uh, chicks being born to pairs that are reproducing in the wild are not outnumbering the deaths that are taking place in the wild. And the cause of the deaths is uh, significantly associated with lead in the environment. California condors are dying of lead uh, poisoning and uh, the lead the isotopic signature of the lead in California condor carcasses matches that of lead, uh, lead composition in ammunition. So uh, the majority of uh, birds for which the cause of death can be determined in the wild is uh, the cause of death is, is lead poisoning. So that's a challenge for the future. The way to do that is to get lead out of the environment, um, uh, and that's been done with gasoline, it's been done with uh, uh, paint, and uh, it can be done with ammunition. The return of the California condor to the wild is, uh, is, has many, I think, wonderful aspects. And one of them is that one of the, the last bird to be brought out of the wild uh, in 19, on Easter Sunday in 1986 was released back into the wild. That occurred 20 years ago um, and uh, after this uh, bird had numerous offspring and his, uh, in, and his, his g genetic contributions are well represented in captivity and in the captive population and now in the free-flying population. And the celebration of releasing this bird back into the wild was really a, an amazing moment and a, that I was honored to participate in. And it began with blessings and prayers from Adelina Aldapadia of the Santa Inez Band of the Chumash Indians. Many indigenous groups consider the California condors to be sacred. Among them is the Yurok tribe. They call the condor Pregonish. The Yurok tribe initiated a California condor reintroduction project in 2008. The restoration of this sacred species is an important element of their far-sighted plan to bring balance back to the coastal rainforest ecosystem in Yurok ancestral territory on the in the far northern California coast. Condors feature prominently in the tribe's origin narrative and its feathers, song, and songs are foundational components of the Yurok world renewal ceremonies. Management and conservation of condors in Yurok ancestral territory and the Pacific Northwest 
is part of the Yurok tribe's obligation to restore balance in the world. And I'd like to celebrate that effort on their behalf uh, because they've lived with the condors for, for millennia. Thank you for your attention, and I look forward to uh, the questions. Jonathan Shuren is professor and chair of the Department of Ecology, Behavior, and Evolution at UC San Diego. His research seeks to understand the status of aquatic ecosystems and the effects of chemical pollution, biological invasions, and climate change on water resource and aquatic habitats. He also works to advance the use of algae and biotechnology as sources of energy and other natural products. Please join me in welcoming Jonathan. Thanks very much for that nice introduction. So I'm John Shuren from Ecology, Behavior, and Evolution at UCSD. Uh, I'm here, here to talk about a new center that has just been uh, started at UCSD uh, that's aimed at tackling some of the most demanding and tricky uh, environmental problems, including climate change, uh, that, is, that is facing all of us today. Uh, and that is going to be cross-disciplinary and involve people from uh, all different aspects of physical sciences, biological sciences, uh, and social sciences with the goal of uh, developing uh, solutions for uh, some of the biggest environmental problems that are around. Uh, and so this new center was founded on several principles. Uh, the first is that human health and well-being are inextricably tied to the environment. And there's many uh, examples of why this is true. Some of the sort of more easy ones or more obvious ones to come to mind are that many of the diseases uh, that afflict us that are infectious diseases are transmitted through water or air or by animal vectors like biting insects. Uh, and so our exposure to these diseases is really uh, heavily determined by the environment that we live in. Uh, and then another is just the sheer enormity and magnitude of the economic and human costs of climate change, of water scarcity and extreme climate events, uh, that the, the magnitude of these really uh, dwarfs a lot of other kinds of uh, challenges that we, that we face. Another uh, aspect of this is that technological uh, solutions are going to be a big part of how we address a lot of these challenges, but they are uh, necessary but not sufficient. So how we manage and steward natural environments uh, is going to have a big effect on how successful we are at preserving our own quality of life while also uh, maintaining biodiversity and the ecosystems that sustain uh, all of our all of our ability to uh, to survive. The final aspect of the center is the understanding that environmental problems are really social problems that uh, they really represent failures of our political and social systems uh, to adequately account for the costs and benefits of different uh, economic activities, and that the these costs and benefits are really borne differently by different groups of people. That people responsible for uh, creating various environmental problems uh, are often very different from the people who who suffer the most from those from those problems. Uh, and so, uh, this new center for nature, science, and society is uh, aimed at engaging people who are working on at the sort of intersection between social and natural systems to uh, understand how we can be better stewards of the environment uh, and maintain our standard of living uh, without further degrading natural systems. Okay, so I'm going to give you some examples now of research from my own lab uh, on problems related to these, these topics. 
and my lab is really focused on aquatic ecosystems and understanding their dynamics and uh, how much life and how much diversity they support. And we consider different categories of processes that affect aquatic ecosystems. And we sort of divide those into three categories. There's the climate, which includes temperature, precipitation, extreme events like storms. Uh, and then from the bottom up, we have the supply of different resources like fertilizers or water or light that uh, support growth of plants. And then ultimately that those plants, uh, that material being produced being uh, divided up among different kinds of animal consumers and other kinds of organisms. And then finally, from the top down, we have animals, particularly predators, uh, that control the abundance of uh, their own prey uh, and, and thereby indirectly exert control over the structure uh, of the ecosystems that support them. Uh, and so we've considered all of these different factors. And what we've really discovered is that these three kinds of factors, these three kinds of processes really feed back on one another and interact in all sorts of uh, very uh, complicated and unexpected ways so that to understand, for instance, the effect of the climate on, on, on ecosystems, you really need to understand how it affects resources and predators. Uh, and each one of these by itself is sort of inadequate to really understand uh, how, how ecosystems are formed and how they, uh, how they maintain themselves. And so just to give some examples of why we're interested in these questions, uh, water scarcity, so we work in aquatic ecosystems, so water uh, and the availability of water is uh, a major and growing challenge for people in many parts of the world, in particular the American West, where we live in San Diego. Uh, and this is just an example. This is showing the flow of the Colorado River at its delta in the Sea of Cortez, the Gulf of California, and Mexico, going back over 100 years. So at the turn of the previous century, there was somewhere between 20 and 30 million cubic meters uh, of water flowing through the delta uh, every year. And then over time, with the construction of the great dams, uh, the Hoover Dam, the Grand Coulee Dam, and the depression, uh, and extraction of water for agriculture and for developing cities, uh, that flow has declined. Uh, and then up by about the 1950s and 60s, uh, the river stopped reaching the ocean altogether. So from the between the 60s and about the 70s, the 50s and about the 70s, uh, there was no flow left at all by the time it reached the ocean. And then in the following decades, during wet periods associated with El Nino conditions, there would be a flow in the river again occasionally, but sort of intermittently, and then in between periods where the river did not arrive at all. And if you continue this graph out the last couple of decades, there is essentially no water arriving at the, at the sea anymore. And it looks like this picture here where you have uh, what used to be a, a huge wetland is now, now a dry desert. So in addition to the quantity of water, our availability of water resources is really affected heavily by quality. And one of the things that really threatens water quality uh, is runoff of fertilizers from agriculture, from cities, uh, from, uh, from all sorts of different human uh, land uses. And this, these fertilizers and nutrients uh, fuel excessive growth of algae and aquatic plants. You can see uh, this picture in the lower left, the surface of Lake Erie, giant, Erie, uh, giant algae blooms forming. Uh, and up here in the upper right, you have uh, in China, a bloom of floating aquatic plants. And when these, when these blooms sort of die off and the, the plants that have created them decompose, uh, the, the bacteria and other things that consume them uh, will use up all the oxygen in the water. And that can result in mass mortality and die-offs of fish like you see here 
uh, in the upper left in Lake Merritt in uh, Oakland from last year, where you had uh, all the fish sort of dying off altogether. Uh, and we see it also in, in things like beach closures here around San Diego, where water pollution coming through the Tijuana River uh, contributes to bacterial uh, loads that are, that are unhealthy for humans. Uh, and so both water quantity and quality are, uh, are real factors in, in driving how, how much we're able to uh, sustain people and, and agriculture that, that supports us. So our lab works on aquatic ecosystems in a number of different environments. One of them is in lakes of the Sierra Nevada mountains in Yosemite and Sequoia Kings Canyon National Parks. Uh, and these lakes are really exciting for a number of reasons. Uh, we've worked on them for the last 11 years. Uh, and one is that there's this tremendous climate gradient associated with elevation. So the high elevation lakes are really cold, low elevation lakes are really warm. Uh, and so we're able to look at how ecosystems have diverged over long periods of time along this natural climate gradient. Uh, the other is that they are also naturally all lack vertebrate top predators. They were formed by glaciers about 12,000 years ago, uh, and they naturally mostly don't have fish in them, but people have, uh, have corrected that situation. So here's uh, a video of trout being stocked into lakes in Utah by being thrown out of airplanes. Uh, this method is surprisingly effective. You would think trout would not do well being thrown from an airplane, but uh, they actually do just great. And so now many of the lakes of the Sierras have populations of these brook trout and uh, rainbow trout and brown trout and other species. And we found that this has really profound effects for the other organisms in these lakes. So here in the middle, we have zooplankton, crustaceans. Uh, these are really heavily affected by trout predation. Uh, and amphibians like this chorus frog, their tadpoles, their larvae are eaten by uh, or eaten by trout. And so some species are, are not able to live in lakes that have trout in them at all. And so uh, some species have been become endangered by, by trout stocking. We've also worked on other keystone species that have uh, outsized roles to play in their ecosystems. One is sea otters in Pacific coast of Canada along Vancouver Island. Uh, so we've studied the effects of sea otters on different uh, fisheries that support different economic, um, economic sectors. Uh, so sea otters prey on these invertebrates like these abalones in this middle slide here, sea urchins, crabs, clams, things like that. Uh, and so the, the availability of shellfish really goes down when otters, when otters come back into their historic range. Uh, but the other thing we see is a big recovery of these kelp forests, these giant algae growing here that form habitat for a lot of other fish species. So like these black rockfish uh, that are hanging out in this giant kelp forest. And so what we found is that when, when otters uh, return to their historic range, uh, the shellfish populations really go down, but the, but the fin fish, the regular fish, uh, are really benefit from their presence. We've also been studying the recent invasion of Yosemite Valley by river otters that are native in California at lower elevations, uh, but moved up into the Yosemite Valley in 2014, were seen for the first time, uh, and have now formed a population there. Uh, they are predators on a number of other species. Here's a video that one of my students, Stephanie Lee, took of an otter feeding on uh, another invasive species, a trout, uh, in the Merced River. Uh, they also are, are heavy predators on crayfish. Uh, and so we've been studying their effects on the food web of the Merced River uh, and the other species that, uh, that live in Yosemite Valley. One other really uh, dramatic invasive species that we've studied uh, is uh, African hippos that have invaded in South America. And the story of how they got there, they're sort of a celebrity invasive species. Uh, so they were brought there for a private zoo owned by the famous drug trafficker, uh, Pablo Escobar. 
uh, and they have been steadily growing in numbers and now are somewhere between one and 200. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about and very sort of emotional debate about what, if anything, to do about them. Uh, and so we started a project to study their impact on the environment where they live. Uh, and so we went out and sampled a series of lakes that have populations of hippos uh, or do not have populations of hippos uh, with our my Colombian colleagues. And so here I am with uh, my colleagues and students from Colombian universities uh, going out and sampling everything from water chemistry and bacteria and invertebrates, insects, fish uh, in lakes with and without hippos. Uh, here in the middle, you can see a student, Danielle, uh, collecting sediment samples from a lake while a, a hippo looks on from uh, 100 yards or so offshore, giving him the evil eye. Uh, and so we've we've been studying the impact of hippo colonization on these lakes. Uh, and one example of some of the things that we've been finding, uh, so we deployed oxygen loggers that measure dissolved oxygen in the water every uh, every few minutes and left them in the lakes for, for weeks at a time. Uh, and this is just showing the daily oxygen cycle of lakes on the left, lakes with hippos, and on the right, lakes without hippos. So on the, the horizontal axis here is the hour of the day. So zero is midnight, 6 a.m., uh, 12 is noon, then 6 p.m. Uh, and then on the vertical axis is the dissolved oxygen concentration uh, relative to the mean of the lake. Uh, so it's standardized. And so what you can see is that overnight, the oxygen concentrations go down uh, as organisms that breathe air and water like fish and bacteria and insects uh, consume the oxygen. So they, they sort of draw down the oxygen level. And then around dawn, around 6 a.m., when the sun comes up, all the aquatic plants and algae and photosynthetic organisms start doing their thing and photosynthesizing, and they produce oxygen. And so the oxygen increases uh, up to about 6 p.m. when the sun goes down again, and then the cycle repeats itself. And so the amplitude of this cycle, the difference between the height of the peaks and the depth of the valleys is a measure of the productivity or how much life these lakes sustain. And so uh, you can see is that these hippo lakes have a bigger uh, daily change, that the range of oxygen is bigger than in these lakes that don't have hippos. Uh, and that is because these hippos are fertilizing these lakes with their waste. They're excreting waste from feeding on land into the water, and their, their wastes are fertilizing algae and bacteria, uh, and they're increasing respiration at night and increasing photosynthesis during the day. And so we see a, a bigger cycle of daily oxygen changes in these lakes. So finally, one final aspect of our research in our lab is trying to apply uh, principles from biotechnology to aquatic organisms in order to produce bioenergy and other natural products, particularly plastic and other products that are produced from petroleum. So petroleum uh, is fossilized oil from uh, ancient algae, but we can, we can produce that same, those same compounds with, with modern algae. And what's exciting about algae is that they're microscopic and so they grow extremely quickly. So algae populations can double every day or even faster. Uh, whereas terrestrial plants like soybeans or corn or palm oil, they, they may double their biomass in weeks or months or even years. Uh, and so that means we can squeeze a lot more energy or a lot more natural products out of a much smaller area of land. So this map here shows an estimate of how much area you would need to replace 50% of petroleum with biodiesel for, from soybeans in gray and then from algae in green. And you can see with soybeans, you'd have to make a 
soybean field bigger than, you know, seven or eight Western states here, uh, which is obviously completely unfeasible. Uh, whereas with algae, you could produce a similar amount of energy in a much uh, smaller area of land because of their greater productivity. Uh, and so this has a potential to replace uh, things that we get from fossil fuels like petroleum or plastics uh, with, uh, with our more renewable sources made from algae. Uh, and so our lab is part of a, a collaborative project growing algae in different environments and looking at how their growth and their chemistry is affected by the climate that they're in uh, and how they adapt to different climates through genetic changes uh, over time. Uh, and so we are, this is uh, our site here. These ponds with these paddle wheels have populations of algae growing in them uh, that we've been growing for almost three years now. Uh, and there's other sites in Hawaii, New Mexico, and Texas. So our goal here is to understand how uh, algae growth and adaptation to these different climates uh, affects their ability to produce these natural products. So for instance, uh, in Hawaii, the environment is much more constant. It's sort of always warm. Uh, whereas in New Mexico and Texas, the summers are very, very hot. The winters can get down to freezing. Uh, and UCSD is kind of in between somewhere. Uh, and so we're trying to understand how the climate affects uh, the growth of algae in, in these different environments. Okay, so uh, these are examples of some of the kinds of projects that uh, we're going to, we're hoping to support uh, as a part of this new Center for Nature, Science, uh, and Society, uh, bringing in uh, expertise from uh, diverse fields like engineering, economics, social science, chemistry, biology, genomics, uh, to try and uh, develop new technologies and also to understand uh, how to maintain uh, the natural diversity of our native ecosystems uh, while also supporting our quality of life uh, of humans and society. And these are topics that are very, very exciting for our students. So these are just pictures of different students who have participated in our uh, research projects uh, over the years. Uh, and uh, and these are these are topics that that, it, that are fine. They find very exciting. And these are the people who will be uh, solving these problems in the future. Uh, and so. Uh, we're we're trying to encourage more uh, development of these kinds of projects to to provide opportunities for these students so that they can uh, they can use their expertise to to try and solve some of the most difficult problems that there are. So, anyways, uh, thank you very much, and uh, and thanks for listening. I'd like to invite the panelists and speakers to join me on the panel. And so, to get us started, I have a few questions for the for our speakers today, um, and. I guess I'd like to start um, first with Shermeen um, and ask her a wait, is Shermeen here? Hang on, yes. And ask her what she would um, recommend that leaders do regarding land use management for Asian elephants and their future habitats. Thank you for the question and, and thank you everyone for um, coming and joining us and listening today. Um, so for moving forward for the future, I think that um, the question is how we can accommodate both the needs of these wildlife and people on the same landscapes. And, and that's, a, that's a tough challenge, but to rise to that challenge, I think what's really required is that leaders, policymakers, um, you know, development agencies um, uh, really prioritize both sides of that equation from the get-go. Um, so we heard John talk about the trilemma of energy and food and environment, for example. And and often we um, we are trying to solve one problem at a time. So we might be trying to produce food, say, 
but that attracts wildlife. Or we're trying to, you know, um, irrigate our crops, you know, um, and therefore we build dams or what have you. So um, I think in order for us to be able to address these um, issues, not just for elephants, but for all of the wildlife species, um, primates, birds, um, you know, in general, there are lots of species that potentially compete with humans for the same resources. We have to figure out both economic paradigms and development paradigms that take those needs into account from the beginning um, when when these development strategies are um, being designed. Um, and I can't tell you specifically, <laughs> but yeah. one example um, is, for instance, with with farmers and agricultural production, um, there there are incentives for you know for farmers to plant certain kinds of crops, say food crops, rice or fruit or vegetables and what have you. And and these incentives could be um, designed more. Uh, with more foresight, where we don't uh, inadvertently encourage people to grow things that could actively solicit um, conflict with wildlife. So as one example. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Um, let's see. And I have uh, a quite, I'd like to ask, turn to John and ask how he thinks the new center might help oh. in this or other ways that it might have an impact on this conversation and balancing these priorities. Thanks, Kit. I think I think the new center has a really big potential to make major contributions in understanding how human health is related to the environment uh, and to the other species that we encounter in it. Uh, so we've got uh, a really good understanding of a lot of human health problems from a medical perspective, uh, from a public health perspective, human behavior, uh, and the pandemic, of course, uh, richly illustrates. Uh, how how human health and how non pharmaceutical reactions to uh, health challenges are are a big part of our uh, of our our tools that we use. Uh, but the other part that's really missing is is how the environments that surround us affect our exposure and our susceptibility uh, to a lot of different health problems. So, for instance, in San Diego, uh, the there's dumping of wastewater into estuaries. Uh, and this causes the estuaries to be more freshwater, uh, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but it actually makes habitat for mosquitoes. Uh, and so that increases people's exposure to uh, mosquito-borne diseases potentially. Uh, and so I think the center is really going to uh, look at this sort of intersection between health and uh, uh, public health, health and social systems and, and uh, in the environment. Thank you. Um, and I have a, a question for, for anyone in the panel who would like to, uh, uh, to answer it from one of our guests who asks about the overall impact on the introduction of keystone species, whether it has a positive effect on those environments or if it complicates things furry, further, especially due to the pace of change in ecosystems. John, yeah, this was related to your talk, so you might be able yeah. to start us on that one. I mean, that's a great question. So the question about how we should consider in non-native species. Um, so the example I gave of like river otters or sea otters where they're sort of, you know, they're native to the continent and to the region, but they're colonizing new habitats, perhaps as likely as a result of climate change. So many species will be able to uh, move up. So for instance, uh, river otters moving up in the up in elevation uh, is very likely a consequence of crayfish moving up in elevation, uh, which may be a, a uh, consequence of the um, of the drought. Uh, and hippos are another example where people have very 
divergent opinions on them. Their environmental impact may uh, may be maybe uh, maybe very negative, but they, for in many people's hearts and minds, they're uh, uh, they're sort of because they become beloved. So uh, that greatly complicates the options when it comes to managing their populations, as I've learned. Okay, I, I would like to ask Oliver a question about what it's like to do research at a world-class organization like the San Diego Zoo, and what draws you to work there? Thanks um, for the question. The um, Well, I'm working in a very, very exciting place. Um, I have the, the wonderful collections of the San Diego Zoo uh, and Safari Park are really um, uh an enormous resource providing access to study animals and uh, create a DNA bank or a cell bank like our frozen zoo that's become a very important research resource for very for enlarging number of applications uh, in in biological sciences. So I think it's quite remarkable that a um, a nonprofit organization like the San Diego Zoo that was uh, Basically established uh, in 1916 to for the um, enjoyment and uh, education of the public is now uh, in such a position to contribute to um, scientific understanding of our world and and the opportunities we have through uh, engagement with uh, in the in the projects we have in 30 over 30 countries around the world. To engage with local communities and and um, indigenous people to uh, help support a, a, uh, a more comprehensive, holistic, equitable uh, effort uh, to um, preserve uh, biological diversity. Thank you. Yeah, we're really impressed with the efforts at the San Diego Zoo and your and with the broader community. Thank you. Elsa, I was wondering if you would care to comment about, um, you know, what the future looks like for California's uh, plant communities in the pace of rapid change, a warming climate, enhanced periods of drought, and what we can do to help help in this situation. Sure. Thanks, Kit. You know, I would say kind of the take home I hope you'll, you'll get from the, the talk today is that uh, plant species in California, they do have the potential to adapt to climate change if we can protect enough populations and enough habitat to maintain their genetic diversity. And, you know, I think that we're more likely to protect things when we're inspired. So, you know, I would recommend that people go out and check out the super bloom. It's pretty magnificent out there right now. And then if you're inspired to do so, there are lots of great local organizations. One is the California Native Plant Society, chapters all over California, and they've got regular meetings and friendly members who can help you get involved. Thank you. That's wonderful. Uh, Shermeen, I would like to ask you what led you to found your nonprofit, Trunks and Leaves? I created Trunks and Leaves uh, right out of my PhD uh, because I was intent on um, doing long-term research on elephants and elephants are live a long time. So you need an infrastructure to maintain that over a long period of time. So I, I had a few other examples that I was going by and they all seem to run on this model of having an, um, you know, a dedicated organization 
um, for that work. So that was that was how it was conceived. And um, I also think that Asian elephants tend to be um, relatively under receive less attention because people are used to sort of thinking of them as these you know cute cuddly animals, and they, a lot of them people interact. Um, while on vacation with captive elephants, and and fewer people are aware of, of the issues for wild Asian elephants, and there really didn't seem to be too many organizations focused on on that side of it. Um, so I wanted to bring bring that awareness as well. Fabulous! Thank you for your leadership. That's really a wonderful story. It's great. Um, so one of our guests asked, "What is being done to address the use of fertilizer that run have caused runoff?" Um, to create dead zones? It's a really, really difficult problem. So at a sort of local level, native ecosystems can be really useful in creating buffer zones. So if you have uh, wetlands, if you think about like the estuaries of San Diego County and you have uh, bands of sort of native vegetation around them, those native vegetation can remediate some of those nutrients and take them out of the water as it runs off. Uh, and that works at a sort of local level. Uh, at a global level, um, deoxygenation and low oxygen, you know, and coastal anoxia is, is a growing problem. So that tells you that clearly whatever is being done is inadequate. Uh, and so if you think about like the Mississippi River flowing into the Gulf of Mexico uh, and the sort of size of that watershed going all the way to Canada and west to the Dakotas, um, and the nutrients running off of all of those farms and eventually winding up in the Gulf of Mexico and causing anoxia. Um, there are attempts to uh, create varieties of crops that require less fertilization uh, to sort of change farm practices in ways that reduce nutrient runoff with the timing of fertilization, the timing of uh, plowing, things like that. But it is it is a really difficult problem because there's not many solutions that don't really impact people's ability to produce food and um, and make a living. And so it is uh, it is a, a a wicked problem wherever you go. Thank you so much. Hopefully we can get to work on that a little bit and restore more buffer zones. Um, so let's see. So there's a couple of additional questions for John. Maybe we can bundle them about the prospect for biodiesel and biofuels taking over from fossil fuels. What's the timeline and um, how big of an impact do you think this could have? It, it's kind of, it, it, it's really interesting. It's kind of, a, so it, I mean, it's being done right now. So you can, there are products you can go and buy uh, made from algae. So there are, uh, so algae make oils or fatty acids, which are used, they can be used in food, they can be used in plastic, they can be used in energy for, you know, uh, for all kinds of things. Um, and so there currently are products made from algae biomass, uh, but the scaling up to uh, the problem with something like fuel is that it's not it's not worth much in a small quantities, right? To be able to have a meaningful impact on climate change with biofuel, you need to produce tremendous quantities, uh, and that is that is a, a really big technical challenge. Um, and it really is about the sort of investment that we make in the research. Uh, it's, you know, there's people working on it. And uh, if there was more money, there'd be more people and the progress would be faster. But I, I mean, it's, it's only really the question is when is fuel made from algae, the cost the same as regular fossil fuel. Uh, and as the cost of fossil fuel goes up, uh, and, and as algae becomes cheaper, eventually those two numbers meet each other. 
uh, and then and then it becomes economically feasible. And I think you know I, I obviously don't know the answer that's about the question about the future, but um, I think you know with the with the you know it's something that could happen in in a matter of you know the next decade or you know not 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 in the sort of infinitely far away future. Fabulous, thank you. Oliver, I, I know you and your colleagues at the San Diego Zoo are doing using a lot of cutting edge technologies to preserve endangered species. Would you like to tell us about any of your really novel approaches? Well, thank you for the question. Um, really, that's a very big part of what we do is explore technological innovations to bring solutions that are more efficient or provide more options to the future than the current trajectory suggests might be available. So whole genome sequencing and comparative genomics, um, similar to uh, the work that uh, Professor Cleland has talked about for the California Conservation Genomics Project with poppies, um, we're doing that with other species. Um, uh, and as we learn more about their uh, the, their genetic variation we uh, and their distribution of that in space and time, we're able to um, uh, do a better job of managing uh, their sustainability and resilience. And we're working on this with uh, California mountain yellow-legged frogs, for example, and with the incredibly charismatic Pacific pocket mouse, a tiny rodent uh, that's in our area. Uh, the whole genome sequencing also is uh, able to give us insights into extinction risk. And there's very exciting work that goes on with this. It's about to uh, appear in publication uh, later this month. Uh, but because we have this amazing resource of banked cells and gametes called the frozen zoo, that's collect been collected over um, uh, five decades, we have an unprecedented resource for um, uh, do undertaking research and for applications. And so we have been exploring the technology of using induced pluripotent stem cells and uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer, that is cloning, to uh, contribute to endangered species recovery with a focus on bringing back genetic diversity that's been lost from living species on the planet. So we've been collecting cells for long enough time that we have uh, it, cells from individuals that represent genetic diversity that's been lost from living populations because it was collected from a population that was extirpated or was collected when a population was much larger than it is now. So um, you can come to the San Diego Zoo Safari Park and see see Kurt of Chevalsky's horse that was cloned from cells uh, of an individual that was born in 1970 and had cell cultures established in 1980 that sat in our frozen zoo for 40 years. And now uh, this animal, uh, the cells from this animal have produced a new animal that is going to restore genetic variation that's been lost from the living population of this uh, unique uh, uh, equid species native to Mongolia. Thank you, very impressive. Elsa, I was wondering if you would want to share with the audience one of your you know, favorite, most surprising, or most impactful discoveries through your research career? One of your favorite take-home points? What a fun question. Um, well, I guess one of one of my favorite uh, things that we found out is that if anyone has a garden, you'll know that 
um, the timing at which something flowers is very, very sensitive to the environment. So when it gets a little warmer, plants tend to flower a little earlier. And um, one of the things that we've discovered from looking at records um, around the world is that when plants are able to really time that flowering to their environment, they tend to do better in the face of climate change. So this is an example of a trait that we can look for. It's relatively easy to look for, and it can actually predict how species are likely to respond to climate change. That's great. Thank you. Very interesting. Um, okay, so let's see. So to close, I'd like to ask each member of the panel, each of our speakers, to leave the audience with one one take-home point or a thought about how we can best preserve um, biodiversity as an individual or member of society or through our professional activities. So kind of an open-ended question. And let's see, maybe I'll start with John. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you can uh, clean off your boat when you go fishing so you don't transport invasive species around. Uh, that's a, yeah. a simple thing uh, that you can do with a hose. Um, but, uh, I mean, otherwise I think really, uh, getting to know and, you know, familiarize yourself and be aware of your local environment, uh, uh, and so you sort of understand and appreciate the phenological patterns that also talks about the seasonal changes, uh, and really just sort of experience your local ecosystems. You will, uh, recognize changes happening before you. And that's, that's a, uh, uh, that will that will definitely increase your your understanding and your awareness. Fabulous. So John is telling us to connect with the natural world around us. Thank you. That's fabulous. Let's see who would like to go next. Let's see how about Oliver. I think that uh, this is a really important question for young people who are going to inherit the planet and who uh, may have heard that about of all of the declines and loss. And the, the most important thing to do is to say, I care and uh, recognize that there are solutions that are being sought and to be part of the effort to bring solutions and make the changes in human society, human culture, and the human mindset um, to do these things and um, recognize the, the connectivity between uh, the natural world, the, the environment we live in, our well-being, and the well-being of the, of the future. So I'm very, greatly encouraged by, uh, by efforts of young people that band together, um, even though they can't vote, for example, and speaking out to uh, those in power and legislators and say that we want to see... Uh, things changed to uh, make a more sustainable, just, and equitable world. Thank you. So commit to change and help bring that change into existence in an equitable manner. Thank you. Shermeen, would you like to comment? Thank you for that question as well. Um, you know, since, since I work uh, far from home, so to speak, you know, one of the things that I think can seem like a challenge is that, you know, there are these problems that are distant from us, right? And how can we approach and impact these things that are distant? And um, that's actually an illusion in a, in a certain extent, because, you know, today we are connected to all these different ecosystems all over the world by virtue of our consumption habits, you know, the things that we buy, the decisions that we make, 
our political, you know, the, the, the decisions that our leaders make, the people, the leaders that we put into power. And so I think starting from whatever, whatever you care about, certainly the, you know, think global, act local, I think is, um, is very apt to keep in mind that every, everything we do potentially has an impact half a world away. And so we should recognize that and inform ourselves about how to be responsible um, global citizens um, you know, in, in our everyday lives. That's, that's a fabulous reminder to think about our own behaviors and consumption and the global impact. Thank you. Elsa. Thanks. It's such a thought-provoking question, and I really like everyone's answers. I guess the the one thing that I that I'll add is that you know anyone who's stayed and listened for you know an hour, almost an hour and a half now, is someone who cares a lot about science and and the natural world. And and I think as we try to tackle some of these you know, big environmental problems that do face us, we're going to have to make a lot of careful choices. And um, and so you know if for those of uh, us that can be a voice for science and as we make those choices, um, that that will be very important. Thank you, that's wonderful. Well, I want to thank each of the speakers for their really thought-provoking presentations and the interesting conversation we were able to have this afternoon. Have a wonderful rest of your day and please do go celebrate Earth Day or Earth Month by connecting with nature around you and thinking about what you can do to help preserve our precious biodiversity, both locally and globally. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.